in about three weeks, Eric and I are going to India, and so we'd appreciate your prayers, certainly, as we prepare for that trip and as we go. And one of the ways that you can help our church is by uh, maybe sending some things with us that we can leave for them. I asked uh, Santosh a while ago about what kind of luxury items we could get for for them uh, that we could leave with them, and uh, like we've done in the past. And I think one of the proper applications to what we saw this morning is that we as God's people see a need and we want to help it help meet that need. And so I'd encourage you, uh, I'm going to have a list out on Wednesday. I just got the list today from Sophie of the things that they would like. And so if you can contribute in that way, uh, it's something that's tangible that you'll see a picture of and, and uh, know that they received it and something that they will, would appreciate you for very much. Some of the things are not just luxury items. Sophie is caring for her father, and, and he's in a difficult physical state right now, and so he can use some some of those things. So I'll get that for you by Wednesday. Let me invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 this evening. And I finished last week by quoting from 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. The 72 disciples had just returned from their ministry of miracles and teaching, to re- and they were also teaching, and they came to report to Jesus all they had done. And in verse 17, they said to Jesus, Even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus responded by saying, Don't boast in the fact that spirits submit to you, but boast in the fact that your names are written in heaven, that they are recorded in heaven. Jesus was showing them and us that we have a privileged position because we are God's children and the disciples of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going to pick up that thought that we have a privileged position and we must act accordingly here in the passage that we're going to look at tonight. Chapter 10, verses 21 through 37. In verses 21 through 24, he shows us that we have a privileged position. And in verses 25 through 37, he shows us that a privileged position that we have demands a godly love. And we'll talk about what that looks like. So let's read our passage beginning in chapter 10 with verse 21. This is the word of God. At that very time, he, Jesus, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills... uh, to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and 
your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But, wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring out oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast. And he brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. A privileged position demands godly love. A privileged position demands godly love. This passage is broken down into, I think, two main sections. First, the disciples have a privileged position, verses 21 through 24. And then, verses 25 through 37, this privileged position requires that they love like their father loves. In verses 21 through 24, we see that the disciples have a privileged position. The disciples of Jesus in verses 21 and 22, have a privileged position over their contemporaries. In these first two verses of our passage, we see that, 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 that these disciples, and I think by extension we, are privileged to be the disciples of Christ because we are receive, receivers of God's greatest revelation. This prayer by Jesus in the presence of the disciples serves as a praise of thanksgiving to God and means and um, and a means to teach the disciples about their privileged position. Sometimes you hear the phrase, you know, when you pray, just pray, don't preach. But here, Jesus is actually preaching for the benefit. He's preaching in His prayer. I don't think that that should be the only purpose of our prayer, certainly. But I think in Jesus' prayer, He is depending on the Father while at the same time teaching something to the disciples and, since it's recorded, to us. And so he's going to teach them about their privileged position in his prayer to God. And the point that he is making is that the revelation of Jesus, that is, Jesus being the representation of God, is the best revelation. Look at verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and, we can supply the word, no one knows who the Father is except the Son. We cannot know who God is apart from Jesus the Messiah. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father's nature. You want to know what the nature of God the Father is like? Then look at the perfect representation of the Father, Jesus, God the Son made flesh. We learn two things from Jesus' prayer about this premium revelation that we enjoy in verse 21. First, we learn the premium revelation of God has been rejected by the elite of the world. He says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the elite of the world, the wise and the intelligent. 
God, Jesus says, listen, this great revelation that I, I am, that I am, I am God, has been rejected by the elite of the world. And the second thing we learn from his prayers that the premium revelation of God has been accepted by the outcasts of the world. Notice the next phrase in verse 21. And have revealed them to infants. We've seen this before that the children in, in the ancient Near East were rejected. They were outcasts. They were uh, of little or no value to the people until they reached a certain age where they could actually work and produce and contribute to society. But as a child, they were just outcasts. And that's why the disciples were constantly, and wrongly, I would say, turning them away. And Jesus said, no, let the children come to me. Okay, Because if you don't receive me like a child receives me, then you're not fit for the kingdom. And so the disciples have a privileged position over the world's elite, but also, notice verses 23 and 24, the disciples have a privileged position over their predecessors, people from the past. The disciples have a privileged position Notice verse 23, turning to the disciples, he said privately. And then he talks about their privileged position over their predecessors. It could be that Jesus had been speaking in front of the 72 disciples in verses 21 and 22. And then he turns to his inner group, the 12 disciples, and begins to speak to them. But more likely, he's speaking in front of a larger group, mixed group, we could say, of both believers and unbelievers. And then he turns to his smaller group of 72 disciples and says, notice what he says here in verse 23, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them. And they wished to hear the things which you hear but did not hear them. The point is that you are blessed above and beyond even the prophets. Here's what Daryl Bach, uh, a scholar, writes. He says, We tend to think that it would be great to see what God did through Moses and Elijah and other prophets. It would be great to be there during that time. But those prophets actually long to see what we see. They long to see what the disciples saw. They long to see what we see now on this side of the cross. What is it that makes the disciples' life so greatly desired by the prophets? I think it's similar to why John the Baptist is seen as the greatest prophet in John 7:28. Remember when Jesus said, "Of all the men, all those born of women, there is none greater than John." He's saying, "Of all the prophets of old that there have ever been, there's not been a greater prophet than John." But then the very next phrase, "Even the least in my kingdom." is greater than he, than John. What was it that made John the Baptist the greatest prophet? It wasn't that he was better than they, right? It was that they were from a distance pointing forward to the Messiah and his coming, and John the Baptist was right there. He wasn't saying, hey, the feast is coming. It's going to be several thousand years from now or several hundred years from now. He's saying, he's here, the king's here. The feast is about to begin. Let me show you the king. Remember what he said in John 1.29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It wasn't, hey, look for the Lamb of God who's going to be coming. It is, here he is. That's why he's the greatest of the prophets. And yet we are greater than John. According to Jesus, it would have been amazing to be Moses 
or Elijah or to be with them and to see God's mighty works on display and to have God speak directly to us. But any one of those prophets would have traded shoes or traded lives with you. Do you realize that? The reason for that is that we now know who the Redeemer is. We know Him by name. We can have a relationship with Him personally. And this makes sense if we think about the analogy. Who is more important? The one who sends out the invitations to the feast or the one who joins with the king at the feast? The prophets are the ones who are sending out the invitations. We're the ones who actually get invited and we get to go. We get to spend time with Christ Himself. John announces the feast and we take part in it. It's not that the Old Testament believers were, or the Old Testament saints were unbelievers in some way. Uh, it, it simply means that they didn't know their Redeemer by name. They only looked forward to a Redeemer who would come. We now know Him. And we will take a special place. Uh, we will have a special position in the kingdom, which they will still be a part of that, but we will have a special place in the kingdom as the bride of Christ. Right? He's the king in the kingdom and we effectively are the queen. And, and so we actually hold, hold rule and authority over all other creatures in the millennial kingdom, including Old Testament saints, including Old Testament prophets, amazingly. Because of all who are born of women, there are none greater than John, but you who are least in the kingdom are greater than he. None of those people, including John the Baptist, are part of the bride of Christ in the sense that they're not a part of Christ's church. We are. Christ still died for them. They still received the benefits of the atonement. But but we are actually His bride. They have a different relationship, uh, but still still great to be recorded in heaven even if if, uh, we think about it from their perspective. So the disciples have a privileged position, verses 21 to 24. Verses 25 to 37, disciples with a privileged position must love like their Father. Okay? If we have a privileged position, what I'm saying is we do, then we must love like our Father loves. Notice in verses 25 to 28, the expectation of a privileged disciple. The expectation of a privileged disciple. Let's step back for a minute before we get into the text and move away from a microscopic view of the text where we're kind of looking at it kind of thought by thought and pull out and think from the larger context of the Gospel of Luke. Throughout this Gospel, Jesus and Luke has been emphasizing on his behalf discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus. And the one thing that he has been constantly emphasizing is the need to not only be a hearer of God's Word, but also a doer of God's Word. In chapter 4, Jesus performed many miracles in Nazareth, but they rejected Him because they didn't properly respond to His teaching. They heard His teaching, but they didn't respond to it. And so Jesus says, it's not enough for you just to hear. In chapter 6, the Pharisees are complaining about the disciples picking grain on the Sabbath, and Jesus says, have you not read? Implication? You need to not only know the Scriptures, certainly they had read about David and Abiathar. 
They knew about that story. But it wasn't just that they didn't know about it. They didn't apply it to their own lives. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in the, at the end of chapter 6, he talks about the wise man and the foolish man. And the difference is, as I have constantly pointed out, is not that the wise man heard the word and the foolish man did not hear the word. They actually both heard the word of God, but the difference was the wise man heard the word and acted upon it, and that's why he had a strong foundation. It wasn't that one had a ancillary or a, an acquaintance-type level relationship with Jesus, and the other did not. They both had a relationship by hearing the word, but the, only the wise man acted on it. The foolish man didn't. In chapter 7, Jesus uses the immoral woman's love for, uh, as an example, an illustration of those who have been truly forgiven. That is, that they understand the forgiveness that has been given to them, and as a result, they act accordingly by forgiving others, and they pour out lavish love, in this case, on Jesus himself. All, right, all the disciples or the Pharisees are thinking, what is she doing? She's wasting all that. She's crying on his feet and wiping her, his feet with her hair and pouring out all this expensive perfume. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Okay, she is pouring out lavish love because she has loved much. The one who has been forgiven much loves much. In chapter 8, Jesus gives the parable of the soils. And remember, all of the individuals that are represented by soils all heard the word. All of them. The difference? Three of them didn't respond properly to the word of God with genuine, spirit-filled fruit. Only one responded by, to the word properly by bearing fruit. In chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus says, Take care how you listen. And then in chapter 8, verse 21, he says, You know who my mother and my brothers are? They are those who hear my word and put it into practice. Okay, so here's a theme that keeps running throughout the book. Don't just listen to my word. Do something about it. In chapter 9, he tells the disciples, You give them something to eat to the crowd of 5,000, do you remember? And his point was, Have you seen any miracles that I've performed so far? Have you... Learned anything from the authority of my teaching? Now act on it. And then in the middle of chapter 9, he tells his followers that disciples must be willing to lose their life in exchange for gaining eternal life. And then in chapter 10, the 72 disciples were to act on what they heard by depending on God for their provisions as they went out to these cities and, and as they went out for the sake of the name. And so now we, we kind of step back, look. Jesus is talking about discipleship. Here's what discipleship looks like. It is hearing my word and doing something about it. And now here again, I think in this passage, verses 25 to 37, Jesus is teaching the disciples of their privileged position and the response that they should have to that word that they've heard. That they need to act on that word that they already know. Notice verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Now, we need to think differently than the lawyer in our day. Probably not that kind of a lawyer. Uh, probably a better way to, to call him is an expert of the law. Someone who is, who is wise when it came to 
the law of Moses. He knew what the law had said. You can think of a him as a lawyer if you think of a lawyer as someone who is proficient in understanding the law, and that's what this man was. He was an expert when it came to the law. He understood it very well, and that's why Jesus was going to ask him a question. How do you read the law? What does it say? What does it say to you? Notice the, the expert of the law had two goals. Verse 25, and wanting, uh, stood up and put him to the test. And then verse 28, I'm sorry, verse 29, but wishing to justify himself. So his two goals in speaking to Jesus, first is to put Jesus to the test. Doesn't sound like a good motive here. And then after he responds to Jesus' question, he wants to justify himself. Okay, so already he's starting out on a bad foot, so to speak. Well, the expert of the law tests Jesus in verses 25 through 28. He asks, how can I inherit eternal life? Or what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it is possible that he is asking about how to work his way toward salvation. So we might hear that and say, well, he's asking how to inherit, how to earn salvation. Nobody can do that. But I don't think that's the case for two reasons. I don't think that's how he's asking, how do I earn salvation? First, I don't think that's the case because the language of inheritance is used throughout the Scripture to speak of what we will receive if we persevere until the end. Listen to Revelation 21.7. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. See what that sounds like? It sounds like the same kind of language that this man is using. How do I inherit eternal life? If we ask Revelation 21.7, how do I inherit eternal life? Do you know what the answer would be from there? You need to overcome. It's not calling for a workspace salvation. It's saying that those who persevere till the end, the natural result is, the natural prize is, they will inherit eternal life. Not an earning, but a result of having stayed faithful to the end. And second reason I don't think he's asking about workspace salvation is because Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Instead, in verse 28, he replies, Notice what, he, what Jesus says in verse 28. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. In other words, do what you've said to do. Love God and love your neighbor. Jesus is saying, No, you can't just love God and love your neighbor and expect to inherit eternal life. He's saying, Yes, actually you can. If you love God and love your neighbor, you will inherit eternal life. Not as the means by which we receive salvation, but it is one of the things that, that God uses so that we get there. In other words, a person who doesn't love God and doesn't, doesn't love his neighbor will not inherit eternal life. You see? So, Jesus responds with a question. When the lawyer asked him, the, the expert of the law says, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? As Jesus often does, he doesn't answer the question. Instead, he answers it with another question. Well, what is written in the law? Verse 26, how does it read to you? He puts it back on him to expose what he is thinking. And the man rightly responds by quoting from Deuteronomy. Now you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with your, all your strength. And the second great commandment, commandment is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And what we know from the larger study of Scripture is that salvation came in the Old Testament the same way it comes in the New Testament. 
It came by grace alone, through faith alone, in the promised Redeemer alone. Nothing's changed. No one in the Old Testament worked their way to salvation. The point of the two commands was not to show how to produce faith, but what faith produces. Remember we talked about, uh, I think it was last Wednesday, faith without works is dead. And that's the point here, that genuine saving faith will result in loving God and loving our neighbor. I think the point is that it was not enough for the expert of the law to know what God required. He needed to, think back to the larger context, he needed to not only know it in his mind, but he actually had to act upon it. That's why Jesus says, do it and you'll live. The second purpose of the expert of the law was, verse 29, to justify himself. And so, Jesus uses the expert of the law's attempt at justification of his action, or in this case, inaction, he didn't want to help his neighbor, to show him what real love looks like. And so, here in verses 29-37, we see an example of a privileged disciple. What, what does it look like for a privileged disciple to walk through life? And for him, the expert of the law, the goal was not a deeper understanding. He didn't want to know, you know, I really don't know when it comes to neighbor. You know how you're supposed to love your neighbor? Who, who is that? Notice what he says here in verse 29. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Do you think that's an inquisitive type of question where he wants to get a response? Or is it a, is it a justifying sort of question? Well, Luke gives us a clue. He says it is a justifying question. Is he wants to be justified in his response. Because he wanted, basically, the approval of Jesus. Saying, hey, don't worry about some of those other people that are way out there. You know those enemies of yours? Don't worry about them. Those aren't your neighbors. Stick to the people who are close to you. Those are the people you ought to love. And I think the reason he asked the question this way is because as a Jew, he didn't believe that he had a responsibility to love Gentiles and Samaritans because those were his enemies. The only responsibility that this expert of the law saw that he had to love was other Jews alone. And so we have the second question of the expert of the law. And for the second time, Jesus doesn't respond with a direct answer, does he? Instead, he responds with not a question this time, but a story and then a question. He's going to give the story and at the end he's going to say, now, which one of these most acted like a neighbor? So Jesus doesn't answer the question. He gets him, the man, to think for himself. Well, the setting of the story, this parable, is that this man who is unidentified is on a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. From Jerusalem to Jericho, we have about 18 miles and it descended about 3,200 feet. And because of that, it's going to be a windy road and a perfect spot for robbers. They would hide out in these little clefts of the, the hill, the mountain, and then they would attack people and steal whatever they wanted. Notice how Jesus begins. A man. Just doesn't give any ethnic background. I assume that the ethnic... The, the uh, expert of the law would have just assumed it was another Jew. And so, verse 30, this man gets robbed, beaten, and left as half dead. And so we have these three characters that come along. First the priest, 
Notice his action in verse 31. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. Notice this refrain. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, he was going down, he saw him, and he passed by. And the second one was a Levite. Notice the same refrain. Likewise, the Levite came to the place and saw him and passed by on the other side. just so happened that a priest passed by and probably justified in his mind, you know, I don't need to help him. Someone else can do it. I've got more important things, more important work of God to do. But we don't know why the priest didn't help him. We don't know all of the, the thoughts and the inner workings of the priest's mind. That wasn't the point of Jesus' story. The point was he didn't help him. The Levite comes by and, man, it's shocking that a priest wouldn't help this poor, innocent man, but certainly a Levite would. And yet, we find in verse 32 that he does the same as the priest. He came, he saw, and he passed by. And so Jesus is kind of reeling his hearers in. See, the priest came, saw, passed by. The Levite came, saw, passed by. And here's the refrain that we should expect. The Samaritan, of course obviously worse than the priest and the Levite is going to come, see, and pass by, right? And yet Jesus makes a shocking twist to the Jewish hearers. Now, we don't, I, don't, I don't think we quite understand how much Jews hated Samaritans because we think of Samaritans as, you know, good people because, after all, we have a good Samaritan, right? But to the Jewish hearers, the Samaritans were traitors. They were low-down, worthless half-breeds. When the northern kingdom of Israel fell in 722 B.C. to the Assyrians, many of the Jews were taken into exile. But some remained in northern Israel, and many of the remaining Jews intermarried with the Assyrians. And as a result, they formed this mixed Jewish-Gentile race which we now know as the Samaritans. And so they were not fully Jew, fully Jews in ethnicity, nor in custom. Remember what the women at the well said? We don't serve on their mountain. We have our own mountain where we serve God. We have Mount Gerizim. And we think true worship happens there. Because they were not full Jews, they were hated by the Jews. But even though they were not full Jews, they were not full Gentiles either. So they were a people group without a camp. Notice the text. Verse 33. But a Samaritan who was on a journey, here's this refrain again, came upon him, and when he saw him, and now we're expecting, he passed by. But instead it says, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged him up with wounds or up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an end. Just, just active verb after active verb. Here's this man being proactive about the situation. And he cares for the need of this man. In fact, he went above and beyond what the, the needs of the man was. That is, uh, or the needs of the man were, that, that he actually took him on his animal, his donkey probably, carried him into town, paid for two denarii, which was effectively two days' worth of work. And so just take how much you make in a day and multiply it by two, maybe a couple, three hundred dollars. And then 
he even agreed to, to, to pay more. Notice what he says in verse 35, middle of verse, take care of him to the innkeeper. Take, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I'll repay you. So if this $300 is not enough for you, I'll give you more. Here, here's, here's more. I'll take care of it. I want this man to be able to be nursed back to health. And you know what the Samaritan was going to receive in return? What, what do you think he expected to receive in return from the man who was beaten? Absolutely nothing. And so Jesus now wants to drive the point home to his hearers and to us in verses 36 and 37. And so now he asks a question to get us to think. What was the question of the man in verse 29? What was the question? Who is my neighbor? Jesus is actually answering that question, but he's changing it a little bit because in verse 36 he says, Now which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Jesus says, Listen, you're the expert of the law. You tell me. You're asking who, my, who your neighbor is? And you're wanting to justify yourself in order to receive approval from me about the boundaries that you can make? Like, here are my Jewish people and I'm going to love them and I'm going to give myself fully to them. But once I get outside of that, no way. And Jesus' response is, who of these acted like a neighbor? Who do you think a neighbor is? You see, the man wanted to know what ethnicity makes a person his neighbor. And Jesus is responding by, by saying, show love to your neighbor. And when you do, you are acting like a neighbor. And in that way, he's actually answering the man's question. Who is his neighbor? Who is his neighbor? What are the boundaries of this man's neighborliness? The answer is there are none. Everyone is his neighbor. Or we could say it this way, anyone is his neighbor. If anyone was going to be a good neighbor, it would be the priest and the Levite, Levites. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter who you are or how despised you are, you are to take responsibility to care for your neighbor, in this case, anyone. Notice how the man responds in verse 37. He said, the one who showed mercy toward him. He can't even get the word Samaritan out of his mouth. Yeah, I guess it's the one who showed mercy. The point is that we ought to love our neighbor. And that means that we must show care and compassion even for those who we would not normally have dealings with. Who is that for you? Who is it that you think, well, I have a special relationship with these people, my family, maybe my church. But those people, they just they, they suck up too much of my time. I, I don't have time for them. No, I can't give up my time for them. Jesus says, who, who is your neighbor? It's not enough for the expert of the law to have heard he must actually put the teaching of Jesus into practice. And so Jesus says what at the end of verse 37? Go and do the same. Go and do the same as the Samaritan. Take the Samaritan's example and follow it. Do what the Samaritan did and love someone who is outside of his normal relationship. Friends, we have a privileged position. We are people who have been called out of this world by God the Father through the message of the Son, and therefore we of all people 
must respond as proper representatives of our Father. And we do this by showing love to anyone, no matter their race, ethnic background, or religious beliefs. Now certainly we do have a greater responsibility to our own family. I quoted this morning from Timothy, from Paul's letter to Timothy, that if you don't care for your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Okay, so we do have a responsibility for our own family. You do have a responsibility for the people in this church, right? That, that we need to show love, and especially to the household of God, Galatians talks about. Okay, so we do have a special responsibility to, to people who are part of our, uh, of our immediate family and our, you could say, church family. But our neighbor really the boundaries of who our neighbors are is limitless. We should be a neighbor to anyone. In other words, you know what love is, now go and do it. Because it's not enough for you to just, like Luke has been teaching us through the teaching of Jesus, it's not enough for you to just hear about love. If you're a true disciple of Jesus, you're going to actually do it. Those who are transformed by that mercy show love to God and love to neighbors. This man had all the answers. You gave him a quiz on what it means to love. He could answer them. But was he going to respond to what he knew? Was he going to live in a selfless, selfless way and reach out to someone who, in his culture, was not his neighbor but was his enemy? And when we do these acts of love, they serve as evidences that we already have eternal life. Those who persevere to the end will inherit eternal life. Those who overcome. And so we as disciples of Jesus Christ have a great and privileged position and our response ought to be, God, what do you want me to do when I know what that is, here am I. I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow you. You know, you know why? You know that that's going to be true, God, because I'm actually going to do it. I'm not going to keep talking about it. I'm not going to, to, to keep building up uh, energy and talking to different people about how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. It's going to be the evidence of my genuine love for God. There is nothing greater that you can know than that you are a part of God's family. And being a part of God's family means living like your Father. Let's pray. Lord, help us to love the way you love. Help us to lo love the way that Jesus loves. And Lord, help us to move beyond knowledge and to action. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But you turn back to 382, a song we have sung earlier. We'll sing the second verse. 382. Good song of reflection for us tonight as we consider how we can respond to the Word that, that we've looked at and studied tonight. 382, verse 2. Nearer still near, nearer, nothing I bring, not as an offering to Jesus my King, only my sinful and now contrite heart. Are we, are we genuinely repentant and wanting to change? Are we genuinely wanting to not only hear the Word, but to do it? Stand with me, please, as we sing. 382, verse 2.